Please take a seat. Let's come to God again in prayer now as we uh, prepare to open Luke 24 together and ask him to help us as we do that. Father God, we thank you for your kindness in giving us your word. We pray now as we open it together that by your spirit you would enliven our hearts and our minds to receive it. And we pray in receiving it that we would see your son clearly and trust him more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, I think it's, it's been a good couple of weeks. Last weekend, we had a four-day weekend, uh, which obviously means either side of that you have a four-day week, and that's always a good thing. And, and in a few weeks' time, we'll have another public holiday, and in a few weeks after that, yet another public holiday. Easter ushers in a great period of the year, don't you think? A period of rest, a period where we get to actually pause just a little bit after what has been a busy start to the year. And this time of year for me, uh, moving here, seems to be the period where Britain comes into her own, where she comes alive. The sun has finally arrived and it seems to have even a little bit of warmth in it and this this little bit of warmth seems to coax people outside. It's like uh, people have been in hibernation for a period of months and the shutters come up the doors are open and people sort of wander out bleary-eyed into their backyards uh, for the first time in months. It's an amazing sight, fascinating to watch for an Australian. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that's been uh, exciting to hear over these recent days as people have been taking some time off is just the, the buzz in people's yards as people spend time with family and friends, relaxing, taking a breath after a cold and busy start to the year. There's something very good about rest. It's one of my favourite things, increasingly so with small children. Life this time of year can be very good, can't it? As the, as the sun gets warmer, as there's a bit of a break. But I suspect for many the whole Easter story that uh, prompts this pause in our busy schedule is for many nothing more than annoying background noise. It's like going to Tesco and you're you're going down the aisle and you know very clearly the products that you want but there's somebody on the loudspeaker telling you about some bargain in the bakery section or two for one on Yorkshire puddings today only and all this random information that you feel has nothing to do with you and you don't want and you wish they'd just turn it off and put the music back on. I think Easter can feel a bit like that or at least the story, all the fuss, all the hype surrounding it. I mean, even for Christians, the whole idea of going to church multiple times over a weekend, twice, maybe three times over this past weekend that we've just had can put a crimp in an otherwise good plan. I mean, how often do we get four days off in a row guilt-free? Perhaps we should, as I heard suggested on the radio last week, cancel Easter altogether. Just do away with it. Not do away with a public holiday, of course. That would be just silly. But uh, cancel the fuss surrounding it. Maybe we'll celebrate something less intrusive, uh, less involved. Uh, I saw a, a couple of brochures advertising sort of sales that were on over the last week and it was just the bank holiday sale. It removed any sense of Easter for that weekend. Maybe that's what it is, just another random public holiday. The spring weekend, maybe we should call it that. Well, what would that four-day weekend and this period that we've been in for a while look like without Jesus? If we do that, if we cancel Easter, what would life over this weekend and beyond 
look like if we take Jesus out of the picture? Would it be much different? Well, turn with me to page uh, 1061 if you haven't got it open, Luke 24, page 1061 of the Church Bibles and we'll be starting at verse 13 of Luke 24. And really what these verses do for us is they give us a look at the events of the first Easter without Jesus. Verse 13 picks up uh, the events on the same day as the reports of the empty tomb. It's a little bit later in the afternoon and the scene zooms in on two people, two followers of Jesus who are now on their way back from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus. One of them we're told in the, chapel, uh, in the chapter is Cleopas, uh, Jesus' uncle. Uh, and now it's a bit of a guess who the other one is. We're not told and maybe it should remain unknown but my suspicion is that more than likely it is Cleopas' wife, Mary, that here we have the couple on their way home. And if you look at them in these first verses from verse 13 onwards, despair is in the air. They've supported Jesus all the way along and now it all seems lost. And as we meet them, they're debating the events of these recent days. It's an amazing scene. We're, we're, we're really sort of intruding in on a couple discussing something. And the word here used for their discussion, it's a sort of a, a light word for what is really going on. The Greek word is of an intense discussion, an argument. This is a domestic we are witnessing. These are heated words between these two. And death does that, doesn't it? The emotions are on edge. And so as this domestic is played out in front of us, before our eyes we become aware that there is another watching Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, very much aware of what is going on for this couple. And so it's very clear very early on in this passage that he is in charge of this scene, that he is not the stranger as he is described as this couple see him, but he is very much in charge. Have a look. At first they're prevented from recognising him. There's something that Jesus wants them to see first. Now that seems unusual, doesn't it? I mean, here's, here's Jesus, the person they've been with all along, the person they love, the person they've just lost and now he's walking beside them and yet they're prevented from recognising him. He breaks into their moment in verse 17 with this question. What are you debating as you go along? What's all this, these heated words? What, what's the fuss about? You see, Cleopas, by this stage, is so steamed up by everything, the emotions are just churning. He says, what do you mean, what are we discussing? I mean, are you so new to Jerusalem that you've missed all that's been going on? How could you have missed it? There's great irony here, isn't there? This is Jesus he's talking to. Missed what? He was right at the centre of it all. But Cleopas goes on to explain. He says, how could you have missed what's happened to Jesus of Nazareth? He was a prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. And in addition, some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. And they came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. We had hoped, they say, 
I imagine there were many hopes that many people had for Jesus of Nazareth, that he would be crowned a mighty king and instead all they got was a stripped, beaten, pitiful figure with a placard above his head mocking any delusion of kingship. It's a terrible scene, isn't it? Well, here is the first Easter without Jesus. What would life look like without him? Well, here it is. If you pull out of place the very centrepiece of history, what is left? They stop still, faces downcast. That's what's left. I think this phrase perfectly articulates what life without Jesus really looks like. No matter how full, no matter how successful a life like that is, in the end it comes up short. 21st century life without Jesus is just the same as 1st century life without him. Graffitied all over it is unfulfilled expectations, unfulfilled hopes. We had hoped, say the couple on the road, and we in 2007 can easily join that chorus, can't we? Sometimes our unfulfilled expectations are of silly things that don't matter. I've been following a a football team in Australia in a a sport called Aussie Rules. They don't play it anywhere else in the world because it's it's really a stupid game. But uh, I I follow it passionately and I've been following a team called the Western Bulldogs that my father followed and his father before him. They're the reason I'm stuck with this dud team. They've won one premiership ever and that was in 1954. And every year as the start of the season comes around, I think, this is the year. And every year we fall short, usually a long way short, to be honest. I imagine uh, for many, uh, as the premiership in uh, uh, soccer over here gets to the end of its season, people who follow Sheffield United, you're in that point again. Are they going to make it or are they going to drop down again? I suspect maybe drop down again. And if you follow England in cricket, you are used to unfulfilled hopes. We could talk about last Sunday, but that would just be rude. So, uh, well, we could talk... No, anyway, we won't continue with that. But there's so many little things, aren't there, in our life that we're used to unfulfilled hopes, but sometimes it's about things that really matter. One of the things that I've noticed in the papers of recent weeks and months is as the troubles in Iraq continue on and on, just this feeling, we hoped it'd be over by now. We hoped the troops would be back, that it would all be fixed. Or even I've watched with fascination in the last few days with just the amazing tumult that the whole country has gone in as Prince William has broken up with his girlfriend. Unfulfilled hopes. But sometimes it's even more important when things like that. Sometimes it's personal, isn't it? I've sat in people's homes as they have said, we have hoped we'd had more time to say goodbye. We'd hoped our marriage would survive this. He'd hoped he'd find a job by now. We'd hoped the scan would be clear. We had hoped. There's so often a gaping hole, isn't there, between our hopes and reality. And well may we paper over it with a four-day long weekend, but in the end we share the sentiment of this couple on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped for more. Well, back to our scene, verse 19, we have this intriguing interaction between the couple and the stranger who we are told is Jesus. And so they outlined to him all the facts of the Easter story, who Jesus was, what had happened to him, even the reports of the empty tomb, all the evidence is there, all the information they could possibly need to join the dots. 
They hear reports of the tomb being empty and we're told they're amazed, literally caught off guard. Why? He told them this would happen. And so into this depressing story that they tell the stranger, he responds with a stinging rebuke in verse 25. See it there? How slow are you, he says. I mean, are you even alive? Is there anything going on upstairs? Is your heart beating? Didn't God say this would happen? Don't you believe what the prophets have said, that Christ was to suffer and then be glorified? You knew the plan and yet you're surprised. And so Jesus says, well, let's go through it again. Let's go right back to the beginning. Sort of like God's plan for dummies. And he goes through the entire Old Testament with them, explaining how all the scriptures speak of him and of what has just happened. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? As the word incarnate explained the word of God. What a moment. I mean, you can get some great books that will give you a sort of a picture of how the whole Bible fits together and how it points to Jesus. But imagine that moment as Jesus himself explains it, that all the promises of God were about him. As 2 Corinthians 1 says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. You see, what these last verses in Luke remind us of again is just how trustworthy God's word is, how thoroughly consistent its message is. God has a plan for his world. He has spoken that plan again and again and again. And now in Jesus he has accomplished it. It is as Hebrews 1 says that in the past God has spoken to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And so Jesus takes time to explain all these things in detail to Cleopas and Mary and he does it because he wants their confidence in the truth of what has just happened, to not be on subjective experience, which has already proved fickle. Jesus is standing right next to them, the risen Jesus. He wants it to be based on the unchanging truth of God's word, of his promises. It's an amazing ploy, isn't it? Quite unexpected. If you were Jesus, what would you have done? I I suspect if it was me, I would want to sort of pull up the veil and say, it's me. But he doesn't. He doesn't because he knows how fickle the doubting heart of man is. He knows how beyond our experience the events of that first Easter are. I suspect many people who don't believe in Jesus' resurrection would argue that if he came into this room right now, if he walked into this church and he sat next to me, then I would believe. We want empirical evidence and we think that's a modern phenomenon, but here we are in the first century with the same reasons to doubt. But the Bible says to us, if you want evidence, if you want evidence of what God is doing to raise downcast eyes, to restore shattered hopes in this world, look to the Bible. The Bible is God's way of finding God. You see, in it, God reveals all we would ever need to bridge the gap between our hopes and reality. In fact, as we listen to God speak, as we do this morning, the thing that we discover is that our hopes Our expectations are nowhere near as big as the ones God has for us. You see, there are things that are far more real, far more necessary, far more hope-filled and wonderful than we often put on our horizons. But the only way we could possibly see that, the only way we could possibly know those things is if we spend time listening to God as this couple are doing. 
And so let me encourage you, if you are someone who is yet to know the hope that God brings to our lives through his risen son, then now is as good a time as any to start listening to him. We've got some great courses coming up in May. We've got Christianity Explored and we'll, we'll dive into one book of the Bible, Mark's Gospel, and we'll see Jesus clearly in that Bible. Or you can come to Discipleship Explored as we look at the letter to the Philippians, another part of the Bible, and we, we see what it means to follow this risen king. Or maybe you're someone here this morning who knows this hope but you're either not in the habit or you've got out of the habit of listening to God. Well now is as good a time as any. Let me put on my uh, home group leader's hat for a second and say that if, if you're not in a home group then that's the absolute best way you could do it I think. There is nothing more exciting than meeting regularly week in week out with a small group of Christians and opening the Bible together and having it speak to us as it is speaking to this couple. Nothing's more exciting in my week is when I get a call with someone who wants to join a home group and I hope this week I'm inundated with calls like that. And if you're in a home group, especially if you lead one, realise what you're in on. That as you meet, as you open God's word, as you bring it to bear on each other's lives, as you apply it together, don't lose confidence in the Bible. Don't lose confidence in God's way of speaking to us. Back to our story again, verse 28. They get as far as Emmaus, their destination, and Jesus acts as if he's going a little further, but they urge him to stay. It's late and no doubt he'd make a good dinner companion. He seems to know his stuff. So they sit down at the table and then it happens. In the midst of a pretty calm, domestic scene, a simple meal, he takes bread, he gives thanks and he breaks it. Three times Jesus does this in the Gospel when he feeds 5,000, the Last Supper and now here and each time it is a key moment of self-revelation, of seeing who Jesus is and it happens again. It is at this moment that the penny drops for the couple. They've discussed Jesus, they've thought about him, they've learned about him and now they see him and then he goes and they are blown away by what has happened. They're so excited They have seen Jesus in the flesh. But much, much more than that, do you see what they're excited about? They have now understood why that is so important, why that's so huge. You see, he's not just a man who's come back to life, the greatest party trick of all time. He is the very fulfilment of every promise, every longing, every groan that the Old Testament has. You see, if you want to know how amazing it is that Jesus has risen, you need to see the huge punch that comes behind it, all the promises that have led up to this moment. This is the very centre point of history and they they grasp it at this moment. God's great hope is that when we open the scriptures as we do now, that we will see Jesus clearly as those two did that night, that we too will have our hearts set on fire by the very great news of Jesus of Nazareth. You want to be on fire for God, passionate for God? Read the Bible. So there it is, news that starts cold hearts again. Jesus is alive. And so in verse 33, so excited are they that they race back the way they've come, all the way back to Jerusalem, some seven miles in the night. And they race into the room, they're they're so excited. You ever felt that feeling where you've got something to tell some other people and you're desperate to tell them? Well, that's where this couple is now and they burst into the room to tell the news and someone steals their thunder. 
The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. So, oh, they already know. Pretty quickly the disappointment of not being the one being able to share this news disappears and they're just so excited. Do you see the logic, the, the obvious response to knowing that Jesus has risen? You can't help but tell people. The news spreads like wildfire amongst them. And as the news spreads and as Jesus comes once again to be amongst them, he gives them a simple task. Do you see it there in verse 48 and 49? Into a world with many shattered hopes comes news of peace, news of forgiveness, news of a new start with God, of repentance, a way forward, news of a resurrection. Why does this news matter so much? Because here at last is news worth hearing. Here at last we have something to say of genuine import to this gaping hole that we so often feel. We had hoped. At last we have something that answers that hope. Something that can actually make a difference. Do you see the power of the gospel of Jesus In the coming weeks, next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to explore the difference the risen Jesus actually makes to life to see how wonderful an answer he really is. To see he's no band-aid solution. He is God's mighty yes to all our hopes and needs. And not in some sort of vague, abstract way, you know, a sort of a nice, pleasant thought for the day. Jesus is risen. I'm not sure if you've ever seen one of those desk calendars that has a sort of a little a pithy quote for each day to sort of, as you start the working day, you read this quote and it's meant to make you feel good for the day. It's not like that. Far from it. The words in Luke 24, verse 34, it is true, the Lord has risen, changes everything. And next week we're going to explore the difference that news makes to the way we approach work. Why we bother working? What's the point? The risen Jesus has much to say about even specific things like that. The week after we're going to see the difference Jesus makes to our relationships, why they matter. But let's finish by coming back to the passage one more time and see the difference he has made to this couple. Into the sadness of that walk back to Emmaus, into the unfulfilled hopes of this couple reeling from the death of their friend, comes the one who has defeated death forever. Did you hear the message of Luke 24? Jesus has kicked death to pieces, destroyed it forever. You see, when we look at death through the cross of our Lord Jesus, the good news is that he has conquered it because it was impossible for death to hold him down. And the logic for us is simple and yet powerful. Death no longer has mastery over him and those who by faith cling to him will conquer death as well. Christ is risen and so will we. Perhaps we should cancel Easter was the suggestion. Well, let me ask, what would we fill it with? Life without Jesus, fill it with what? The first century and the 21st century say in harmony, we had hoped. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now nothing compares to that promise. Let's pray.